I am an African. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Africa for Dummies show. As always, we're here with another great uh, topic and another great guest. Um, as always, I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Zengi. How are you doing, Zengi? Hello, everybody. I'm doing very good. Uh, we This is our first episode of the year, actually. So, oh, yeah. exciting. The new 34. Uh, yeah. Any resolutions? No. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> just, we just keep on plowing ahead and plowing through, and <laughs> no resolution. Yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so no, I'm just, I'm just on yeah. positive vibes. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't want to be one of those gym guys who just, you know, end up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, I guess you. No, no serious. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, yeah, anyways, although we don't have any serious resolutions, we have uh, another great guest uh, lined up on the podcast today, but um, who's going to basically tell us how African uh, countries lose uh, their authority over minds. And um, before we get into that, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please be sure to uh, support this channel uh, by liking or subscribing or hitting that notification bell. This channel exists to simplify African, uh, complex African issues and simplify them so that we're able to understand uh, what's going on in our country. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, who is uh, Dr. Ben Bradley, uh, a lecturer in international development at the University of Bath. Uh, his research usually focuses on the political economy, economic transformation in Africa. He's also a member of the editorial working group uh, for the review of African political economy and an affiliated member of the Center of Mining Research at the Catholic University of Kavu DR Congo. That was a mouthful, but welcome, <laughs> Dr. Bradley. <laughs> Dr. Bradley, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and Ben is fine, please. And uh, yeah, uh, hi, both okay. of you. Good to, be, good to be on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. But as I was reading your um, your background, it sounds a lot like somebody who was born on the continent. How so? Explain to us how somebody who's in the UK ends up being interested in um, you know DR Congo and, and mining and economic transformation in Africa. Yeah, I suppose the interest came from my university studies when I did a postgraduate degree in development studies, and I did. Uh, studied a lot there, questions around African developments. And then that took me after the degree to working for several years for a range of NGOs. And then I spent the best part of a decade living in Eastern and Central Africa. And most of that time was in Congo, uh, working a lot on labor, human rights issues in the mining sector with a particular focus on the mining sector. And so that's where I suppose that's where it, it came from. Oh, okay. Uh, no, that's... Uh... It's quite an interesting uh, way to find yourself into uh, African political uh, issues and, 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 and particularly the DRC Congo uh, is also an area of interest because, you know, I think a lot of people on the continent are very, you know, surprised because um, I think DRC Congo is resource rich, really. Like it has like, I think almost, you can find, literally find almost every single um you know resource there so a lot of people are surprised that 
fact that it's one of the poorest countries in the world, but yet it has such an enormous and vast amount of resources, which kind of, you know, points people to this thing in Africa called the, you know, resource curse. Um, you know, could you potentially like shed lights on like how this resource curse came about and if it even exists, if you think it, if you think there is some sort of truth to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I think, worth saying that the resource curse, while it's often discussed in the in the context of Africa, applies it has been applied more broadly as well. Uh, it's not not something that's just seen as specific to Africa. And then, of course, as you alluded to in your question, there it's also debated to, to what extent it does or doesn't exist to begin with. But I think, at its simplest, the resource curse which became very popular as an idea from the 1990s and 2000s onwards and still holds a lot of traction today, I think. But it basically, at its simplest, is the idea that countries such as the Congo, which are incredibly rich in natural resources, minerals and metals, extractive industries, see worse development outcomes, whether that's economic development, human development, than countries with fewer, with lesser wealth in natural resources. So it's seen as this, I suppose, paradox, and then it becomes this idea that it's a curse to be, to have such natural resource wealth, because it appears to lead to inferior development outcomes. Now, as you say, does this problem exist? As I say, it's a debate. People have debated it. There are some people who don't see much value in this idea of a resource curse. And I think a lot of the debate is around the fact that you might, there might well be a correlation there between many countries where you have high levels of resources and potentially lower development outcomes, however measured or understood. But then the, the big question is, well, what's, what's, what's causing those outcomes and what's driving those outcomes and how, how intimately related is that to the natural resource wealth or not, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, a big debate to be had, but it, it certainly tapped into, I think, the predominant idea that people have in their minds when it comes to the resource curse and Africa in particular. And it's not only about this, but I think people will often tend to think about um, African governments and governance and corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's not only about that, but I feel in terms of the popular imagination, at least, when people talk about or think about the resource curse in Africa, they will often straight away go to corruption. Uh, and, and this is, you know, and the presence of natural resource wealth feeds into a mode of governance, which is inclined more towards state patronage and corruption than national developmentalist goals and ambitions. Hey, that's interesting. So would you say that, because um, I mean, the way the system is right now it kind of sounds like, um, I guess you would say like the corruption kind of came about, like, was this corrupt system still in existence prior to colonization or were the mines well, look, running in some sort of different way prior to that? Yeah. So I should, I should, I, I should have said there that, I mean, I don't personally sort of put so much emphasis or focus on on corruption as as the issue here. I was I was more just explaining, I suppose, what the resource okay. curse is and how it's explained. I mean, personally, I think there's far too much emphasis placed on African governance and corruption as the way to understand 
um, certain development outcomes or trajectories or the way things are on the continent today. I think there's an almost obsessive focus with that as sort of the primal, the prime driver of, of everything. Uh, I, I think uh, often what that excludes or leaves out of the question is, you know, the external context and, you know, the global economy and the external constraints for kind of a quite narrow focus on what's happening in turn. Not to say those issues don't exist, right? Or that they're not there. I mean, you know, you go to Congo or Nigeria or, I mean, people won't take you seriously if you deny that those problems exist. But it's just, uh, it's just the question is, how much influence do they have on, on these development outcomes that people are thinking of and focusing of when they're looking at the resource curse? Um, and so in terms of the... You know how does that relate to the colonial experience or the historically which i think was your your question yeah. is that right yeah yeah i think the first thing to say is in terms of natural resource wealth it wasn't it wasn't only it wasn't the colonial encounter that necessarily was the beginning of the exploitation of natural resources right okay. so you had a lot of mineral and metal exploitation taking place across the continent um and one of the, I think one of the most sort of famous examples of this that's become increasingly popularized in recent years um, through Howard French published a book, uh, Born into Blackness. You might, you might have, have, have come across that. And then there's also the um, historian Isaac Samuel, who writes a lot about this recently or has written some about it, is the, this pilgrimage taken by uh, Mansa, Mansa Musa, I think I'm correct in saying, in the, yeah. in the 1300s, a pilgrimage from West Africa through Cairo to Mecca, where he was documented to have traveled with, you know, a huge retinue, hundreds, hundreds and thousands of people and hundreds of tons of gold and distributing this wealth as he went. And this became sort of, you know, a very famously documented story that kind of traveled, traveled to Europe and other parts of the world. And then, you know, in places like Congo, you have, you know, evidence of a long history of pre-colonial copper exploitation and so on. And so it didn't begin with the colonial period, but the colonial encounter did fundamentally alter the way in which both the way in which the control and ownership over the exploitation of these resources, who controlled them, who owned them, and to whose benefit were they being produced fundamentally you know all that shifted and changed through the colonial encounter so i think it was a fundamental shift in the way in which that productive activity was taking place and who was benefiting from it right, that's, uh, that's really interesting what? yeah and um Mansa, i think Mansa munsa was also i think some records have it that he was the richest man to have either ever lived or definitely of his time yeah um, yeah because lying in the streets with bold and um, going on i think he's going to make a, yeah so, yeah yeah um the yeah. history of minerals in abundance in many um african um pre-colonial yeah. african um, civilizations yeah even ghana if you think about it the golden ornaments and you think about it yeah yeah you know um, so, so moving on to the next, yeah, so, so moving on to the next question, we just wanted to get like, when we, when you read books or in colonialism, when, when they're, they're explaining it to kids, normally they give you the three G's or the three C's, which is gold, glory, and God, 
uh, or three C's, which is civilization, commerce, and Christianity. Yeah. Now, what sort of um, catapulted the expansion of mineral production in Africa? And could you tell us about the structure um, precisely? Because, you know, people also talk about the uh, line of rail, like, you know, if you look at the railway maps of Southern Africa in particular or East Africa, they normally just like, it's normally that for extraction. Could you just give us uh, an explanation of what brought the, um, you know, external powers um, into Africa? What drove their, you know, their economies to come into Africa? And then um, what did they do in specifically and how did they design this sort of mineral um, um, ex the exploitation in Africa? Yeah, sure. And I think I'll focus in terms of, I mean, the motivations behind it is, I feel like that's almost a whole other discussion in itself as well. Um, and there were many and varied, but in terms of how that, how they went about setting up the mineral extraction and what took place there, I think we can use the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo as an illustrative example. Although of course things took place differently in each, each, each part of the continent at the time, but what you tend to see during this colonial encounter as the European powers moved in and began to discover increasing amounts in many cases of mineral wealth as what you saw in the case of Congo for example was under both King Leopold and then increasingly under the Belgian Congo in the early 1900s was a high level of investment from Belgian industrialists into the mining and transport sectors. As you say, when you look at the transport infrastructure, much of it was put in place simply to get minerals from point of extraction to export. And you see those dynamics continue to go on today in the Congo, where you have both China and the US and Europe putting in place plans to extract minerals east and west from the Congo. So there's a colonial continuity there. But so there's heavy investment in the transport and mining sectors. And there was also a concerted effort on the part of the Belgian government in the Congo to suppress alternative trading networks and alternative trading routes. So there was a real shift in the diversity and complexity of the pre-existing economy. And there was a real concerted effort to move the economy towards being a mineral exporter and for those minerals to be exported to the colonizing powers. And so at obviously low prices, um, where what you saw taking place was super profits going to colonial mining companies because their production was based upon the super exploitation of African labor. It was African labor that was either forced labor or that was being paid extremely low wages uh, and then being exported to Europe and feeding into ongoing processes of capitalist development that was taking place in Europe, right? So I, I think what you did see generally was a real shift in the ways in which those colonial economies were then forcibly inserted into the global economy represented, I think, a fundamental break from what had existed before and a fundamental rupture with what had existed before and the way African economies had been inserted into regional and global networks of trade prior to the colonial encounter. It really, it really did shift in a lot of areas that had mineral and metal wealth uh, and went in this direction, having a much more narrow, concentrated economic structure which was highly dependent upon export of minerals in a way that in a way that had did, didn't exist to that scale or that sense before it would be how I would see it anyway. Yeah. And, uh, it's just interesting. Like, I just found uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with math. So I like looking at how 
maps have changed over the time and you know the railway lines and all of these things and um you know after uh, you know post the post-colonial narratives in africa is normally about redistribution and all of these things and there's this song by a famous um, zambian uh, not zambian sorry south african uh trumpet player called duma sekela and it's called skimela and he talks about people going onto this train from the Kilimanjaro of Southern Africa to the gold mines of Johannesburg. Um, and when you look at when they talk about development deficiencies, they talk about the line of rail and how, you know, um, even the main road is called Cairo Road, being by Cape to Cairo ambition. And the railway line accompanies that road. And it goes from the Copper Belt region in through Livingston down to Zimbabwe and into South Africa. That was very interesting. And when you look at the development lines and the cities, they're normally around that as well. And so now, like if we move on to the post-colonial period, what did governments do about what they were given after colonization? And the why, why, like, could you just give us rationing for why many of these governments pursued policies of, you know, nationalization, um, there were state-owned companies in many countries. And for some countries, the golden era, I know for Zambia, other generations talk of it in wonderful terms. Uh, and in mm. other countries, I know they talk about it in wonderful terms. So even in um, countries that you have studied closely in like Zaire, I've heard some Congolese speak of it, speak of those type mm -hmm. some some type of nostalgia, you know, yeah. Like a boom. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, yeah. Uh, Zaire, uh, the system. So, what do you just tell us what all of this was about the nationalization, even in West Africa and Ghana, the nationalization, and when, where did these glory days go? Because for us, we haven't, we haven't, it's pretty good to be Yeah. 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 No, and you're absolutely right. It's the same in the Congo when you talk about this 1960s, early 1970s from people who lived through it or, we're very close to it. Yeah, they talk about it with a certain sense of nostalgia, which I think on the one hand reflects the trajectory since then, right? In in Ghana and Nigeria and, and Congo and elsewhere. But on the other hand, I think speaks to the fact that things were quite different. And I think the 1960s and the early 70s across much of the continent is, is a really important historical period to, to keep hold of and to learn from when thinking about, um, you know, policy and planning and strategy today. So in terms of what went on, and yeah, as you rightly said, there was a kind of a broad process of nationalization of mining sectors, uh, putting in place of state-owned enterprises. You know, I think it was sort of alluded to when we were talking about the last question of the colonial encounter. I think fundamentally what had gone on was that anti-colonial resistance movements had seen very clearly what was taking place and that they had lost ownership and control, sovereignty, over their resources, which were, which were being produced and extracted to the benefit of the colonial powers. And so I think that was largely why the state was such a target of these anti-colonial movements. And they wanted to essentially overthrow and capture and gain control of the state apparatus and try and shift the logic within which their economies had been 
set up right to, to shift the logic away from kind of serving external needs and interests and towards trying to serve internal demand internal needs and internal interests and i think the governments of that era saw regaining control over how these resources were being produced and distributed and to whose benefit as fundamental a fundamental part of that process and so yeah you, in, you indeed saw a range of what might be considered radical policies by some in this direction. So in, you talked about in Zambia with um, the late um, Kenneth Kaunda, who was one of the leading figures in putting putting in place the copper price. You know, you have OPEC today, right? The um, organization for the ex petroleum exporting countries. So they did something similar with copper in the 19, I think it was uh, maybe the late 60s, early 70s, where they tried to put in place, they did put in place a copper board to try and control prices. I think uh, Nyerere in Tanzania put a ban on extractives, a similar way that you have in El Salvador in Latin America, there is a ban on, I think it's metal extraction. So Nyerere said, until we develop in Tanzania, the productive capacities and capabilities um, and the productive forces are at a level where we can begin to benefit from this, we're going to put a ban on uh, who, who can be exporting these minerals. So you had a whole range of, and then introduction to say then enterprises. And it was indeed, a brief, a relatively brief, but I, I would also agree with, I think your assessment that it was a, 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 there was a lot was gained in a relatively short period of time. I think it was, a, you know, when you look at, when you look closely in different country case studies and stories, um, that kind of 10, 15 year period of the 1960s, early 1970s, um, huge gains in kind of social and economic developments in a relatively, as I say, brief period of time were achieved, not only because of the nationalization of mining sectors, this was a more broader kind of political philosophy taking place across finance, but you know, other sectors of the economy, I think in Congo, something like 40% of the economy was under national public ownership um, by a certain point. So it was a kind of broader, uh, broader strategic objective. Uh, and you indeed saw some pretty rapid progress. Um, in in kind of a 10 15 year period but then as you say it quickly came undone and you might want to we can talk about that more if, if you'd like in terms of well why did it come undone and what happened um but it but i think that was the broad kind of spirit of the time yeah i think um yeah i think you've you've sort of like in the conversation you're sort of touched to like your um the way your article is sort of written as well so I just wanted to like sort of, um, I think because Zenge is also somebody who's researched most of these things, like I think quite in depth. And but I, I think maybe I'm the dummy in this conversation for, for now. So uh, just to kind of get like, um, I think the way that you the article was written. So in the beginning, you mentioned that you have to blame the African state, um, and I think you kind of touched on this when you said that. Um, a lot of emphasis has been placed on the corruption, uh, which is true, uh, but you also talk about these uh, external. Why is that the first step and how exactly, maybe using some of the examples that you used, how does that work? Yeah, so the first step, so in the article you're referring to there, what I tried to do is lay out what I talk about is the three steps through which Africa lost control of this, regained, briefly regained sovereignty over its resource wealth. And the first step I talk about there is, as you say, blaming the African state, which was what happened when this period came to an end around the mid 1970s. 
to the late 1970s. What you saw in many of these countries that had been going through um, quite rapid progress of social and economic change and development is that all came undone pretty quickly from the mid 1970s onwards. And the World Bank uh, at the time, a range of um, American economists, uh, Northern economists, uh, who were looking at this, the prime explanation that they came up with as to why this period had come undone so quickly was due to state mismanagement, um, inefficient, state inefficiencies, let's say, and mismanagement. So, you know, bloated state bureaucracies, too much state intervention, too much price distortion. Uh, and, and this was the understanding. So it was basically saying that the African state is too heavily engaged and involved in the national economy. And that is why we're now seeing this period of stagnation and decline in many African countries. But of course, I think the problem with that, or at least what I would argue, and what I and many others would see as a problem with that understanding is that, and there's this great book by, um, which is, you know, I'd recommend to anyone, which I happen to just have here actually, by um, the late Malawian uh, Tandika Mokandawiri and Charles Saludu, which is, our continent, our future, African perspectives on structural adjustments, you know, they write out very clearly that this understanding of blaming the African state was too narrowly focused on internal dynamics, and it completely ignored the external mm -hmm. context. And what you had in terms of the external context in the 1970s, I think just very briefly, the most important things that took place that come to mind were, you had a huge drop you had in commodity prices and demand, because you had a long period of stagnation and um, inflation in the global north. So demand for commodities went down dramatically, prices crashed, and there was a huge increase in the cost of oil. So for a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, the copper price crashed by, I think, went down by, I don't know, 50, uh, halves or uh, in about six month wow. periods, and the cost of oil imports quadrupled over a four year period. So, you know, if you're if 95% of your export revenue is dependent upon a few minerals and the price yeah. of those minerals crash and you're importing four times more to meet your fuel needs than you were paying before, I don't care if you're the cleanest government in the world, you know, good luck managing that and coming out of that successfully and smoothly. And so the issue was that the, these, these kind of dynamics and constraints weren't given due consideration. I mean... Uh, and it was all about the African state. And, and so that was then what led, that was the first stage in this process of losing control is the problem was seen to be the African state and the way in which it was mismanaging the economy. Mm -hmm. And then the objective came to be to take the state out of the picture, essentially, and, the, and that's privatize the sector. Right in the structural adjustment program, which leads us to exactly. the second stage of liberalizing, privatizing. I think uh, what Zengi was uh, actually previously uh, talking about, I think I, I might have looked at, like, uh, touched on this basically when I was looking into, uh, you know, the history of maize in, in, in Zambia. You sort of see how, um, you know, when the, you know, as you said, the country was highly dependent uh, on, you know, these resources to essentially uh finance most of their uh programs that they started like free education the subsidies for agriculture and all those sorts of things but now that um the the the, the resources of the mines were simply taken away uh it really created a, a serious problem would that be a 
correct assessment, if, uh, or maybe there's something that I've missed there. In terms of that was what led to then the to, to stage two. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, and and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So also like, um, why? What's so important in stage two for? Okay, so then now the the, the state has essentially lost. The 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 mines and other mines are in the hands of foreign uh, powers. So now they've essentially lost um, a significant amount of, of of that. Then, which now pushes on to stage three, right? Which is yeah. I mean, we can talk about yeah. Sorry, no problem. You can go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about, I mean, the liberalizing and privatizing component, you know, it is worth mentioning, touching on briefly, if we have time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, I might have mis- misunderstood your previous question. But, yeah, I think your reading of it is is absolutely correct. And I think, you know, it's also important to say, when you look at the histories of some of these state-owned mining companies, I mean, there's a Zambian economist, Greaves Chelwa, who's written about this, where he says, you know, the success of a mining sector is not to do with who owns the mines or who runs the mines. It's about prices. Are the prices up? Are they strong or are they not? And if you look at the history of many of these state-owned mining companies in Zambia, Congo and elsewhere, they perform, they were performing very well as prices were, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And it was when the crash happened that things started to go backwards. So it wasn't to do with ownership and management. It, it wasn't only to do, and I think the ownership and management, to my mind, was is this sort of a red herring, or it's to, you know it's kind of diverting attention from the real structural constraints of like sustained development through extraction. And but but you're right that the understanding of the African state and blaming the African state was then what justified the privatization of the sector, liberalizing the sector, uh, and opening it up to foreign investments essentially. Um, and then what you saw in the 90s and 2000s was, you know, high levels of investment in African commodities uh, and a revival of production levels from the 2000s onwards, I suppose. And, and across a far wider group of countries than had been the case in the 1960s and 1970s. You know, you now have a lot of countries that are seen by these investors as described as, you know, frontier economies, or right, where it's, I think, Burkina Faso might be an example of that, um, where it didn't have as significant gold production historically as it has today and so you had a huge level of investment production got uh production level started going up again uh, and in many countries are now at kind of historically unprecedented levels um and what you have is pretty much a landscape dominated by the control of um foreign mining corporations fundamentally across the continent who are in, who are now back in ownership and control of the sector yeah and um you know, since they've gained more power, I think that, um, and, you know, the state has, I guess, less power over um, these mines and things like that. Now you, you sort of see uh, an increase in these um, artisanal miners or illegal miners, uh, particularly in Zambia. I think it's, Zambia, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's called Black Mountain or something like that. And I think uh, I recently also saw a viral video of um, some, some yeah. oh, sorry about that. Uh, I recently saw a, a, a viral video of some miners in Congo, uh, literally saving. Yeah. You saw, yeah, where the mine was literally collapsing and they were saving each other from there. And uh, so the question is, why are these groups, you know, vilified? Um, you know, because I think it's something that's seen as you know, wrong, but then kind of odd because, you know, these are people that are coming from those particular countries that they have the right to do 
uh, to collect, you know, my, uh, the resources themselves rather than a foreign institute. Yeah, exactly. So why are they vilified, which is a great question. And indeed, so, and yeah, that video, I saw that same video and, uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a crazy video of these, yeah. these miners just coming out of coming out of uh, the whole yeah. first time yeah. Yeah. Like just jumping out of the dust covered in but so why are they vilified i mean fundament i mean i think the most important reason that comes to mind as to why they've been vilified in terms of economic policy and planning is this idea that artisanal and small-scale african miners are it's an unproductive inefficient subsistence activity and therefore, it's not of interest to economists as a poverty alleviation strategy, as a national development strategy. It's labor intensive. It's, it's not using much capital or technology. Uh, and so it's not seen as an efficient development strategy economically. Uh, and so there's been a preference for instead, you know, industrial mining, basically highly capital intensive, high levels of productivity is kind of the, just kind of the economic capitalist logic, I suppose. And so they, they were marginalized within this whole process of mining sector liberalization and privatization. And they were criminalized fundamentally because they didn't hold private property concession rights to the deposits that they had been working on. And so when you had transnational mining corporations coming in to take hold of those deposits, they had no formal claims to stay on that land. And so often, and this still takes place today, you have mass scale forced displacements of these miners, tens of thousands of miners at a time, often police and military are leading these sweeps as they're often talked about. And so these miners are being pushed out to the most marginal deposits um, and taken off the most prized deposits, which are being taken control of by, by the corporations. So they were, and then, but then they also become vilified in a sense because they're often associated with, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, they're often associated with human rights violations or child labor problems, um, links to conflict financing uh, and so on. And so these sorts of issues that, you know, particularly liberal, you know, Western liberals do like to focus on a lot. Um, and so they kind of get vilified for that reason as well. Uh, and then the end result is that they're basically, uh, the end result is, I think, um, a real misstep in which, you know, these ten millions of African miners and workers across the continent are, yeah, sort of pushed out um uh pushed out of kind of ownership and control of these resources in favor of foreign corporations predominantly it is starting to change a little bit and there is there are some shifts in some countries where things are starting to move back in in another direction um but but i do think this vilification is 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 quite misguided and and often misunderstands a lot of the developmental benefits and advantages that that sector has to offer to, to local and national economies yeah yeah um th that's very interesting because um and then it's, it's fascinating that actually you wrote about it because even like when growing up um they they are their names and nicknames for people who do that and it, uh, it's it's a derogatory term so like in zambia and normally there's sort of um the name is sort of coupled with gangsters and bandits and 
like, you know, high-level criminal organizations. So in Zambia, you have the term Jerobos. In South Africa, I think it's Zama Zamas. Um, mm -hmm. You had ninjas in Congo. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, never, it's never a good thing when really they are the only, you know, like people would talk about how, you know, if you, uh, you know, older generations of Zambians would be like, would say that they, when they were growing up, they were called the copper, puns, copper, copper spoon children. Um, mm -hmm. In Botswana, they called the, you know, the diamond babies. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the average experience of people from these countries, it's very unlikely that they have actually seen the diamond mine. They most likely don't have shares in any diamonds uh, or anything. So these guys are the, basically at the forefront of, of these things, even though, yeah, it's, it's quite rude and, and the way they're doing it. But I think one thing that's also interesting after privatization is the incoming of multiple actors, international actors. Um, so, you know, people talk about the new scramble of Africa. Our first episode was actually on the new scramble of Africa. And so we see not only the traditional, you know, the UK, the former colonizers and the, the Anglo-American companies and conglomerates. We also see China, we see India, we see the UAE, Saudi Arabia. Turkey, um, all of these countries coming in and getting shares and majority shares. I think in China, in the DRC, uh, I read somewhere that almost uh, 70% there's a, what is it called? A monopsony and a monopoly. China was almost becoming a monopsony and a monopoly, which basically means you control um, the production and you also control the um, you are the market as well, the dominant mm -hmm. market. So most of the money owned by China and the client was China. So if you could just speak about that and sort of this massive in influx of international players in the mineral industry in Africa, even in uh, Ghana, they were protesting against Chinese um, multinationals coming in oil fields and so on and so forth. And yeah, so could you just speak about that and is there anything Africa can do to benefit from it? Because normally people talk about how, you know, as just a pawn and so on. Yeah. Well, listening, we also have an episode in China as well. You can check that out as well if you want to know more about Africa and China. <clears throat> yeah, well, is there anything that Africa... I mean, you're right. This, yeah, this huge amount of interest in what, what have been called critical minerals and metals that are needed to drive the kind of hoped-for transition to low carbon economies and society globally, which are, you know, littered across the continent in abundance. And so you have increasing attention from, you know, all sides of the globe centered on Africa's minerals. Yeah, on the one hand that, you know, should play to government's benefits in terms of being able to leverage um, and negotiate contracts for, for their products, if they have more people interested in them than, you know, than, than one for example um but in terms of <clears throat> i mean and there's also a lot of excitement about the potential for this to deliver development right to africa this is sort of the big thing that people have excited kind of a lot of development corporations and agencies and so on are very sort of focused on is you know how can african governments and countries leverage this supposed opportunity to achieve national development aspirations and so, so that, of course, there's, there's always opportunity. And there's always, you know, we, we, we should never completely write off or foreclose, right? What's what's possible and what can happen. But I think at least my own perspective on it would be, 
you know, if you look at the African, the African Union, AU 2063, you know, what is one of their defining aspirations? It, you know, it's essentially, it's for African countries by 2063 to have structurally transformed away from a dependence on exporting primary commodities and minerals and metals and to have created, you know, full and productive employment for all and to be prosperous, right? And to take its place within the, the global economy. And so if that is your aspiration 50 years from now, and you look at many countries, I'm sure it's similar in Ghana, it's, it is the case in Congo, and, you know, they, they, you know, their national development strategies are basically aimed towards that. They want to become middle-income countries or lower middle-income, middle-income, high-income, right? That's what they're looking for. And so that is what you're looking for, and that's what you want to achieve. I think fundamentally you have to get serious about industrial policy. As one of my mentors said to me once, if you don't have a serious industrial policy, I think all bets are off. You know, if there's one, if there's one common thread in the history of countries that have gone through processes of economic transformation, sustained processes over time, where they've diversified their economy and transformed them structurally away from that dependence on exports, you know, the one commonality is those countries got serious at a certain point in time about having an industrial policy that was not just focused on following a comparative advantage in your minerals and metals. And so in terms of, of course, there's opportunities there. There's, you know, there's always, you know, way and means through which, despite the constraints, if you have the political will and you have the strategy and the policies, um, things can be achieved, right? And, and, you know, and if you can get some of the fiscal revenue from the exports and put that in place and reinvest those in developing other sectors that are deemed to be strategic, yeah, absolutely, uh, this can happen. But then, of course, the question is, well, how likely is that to happen in a country like Congo, which has just voted in, you know, Tshisekedi for another five-year term under the same political logics of Kabila? And, you know, so there's like a real-world question of, well, how likely is this to happen? And is it just going to benefit a very narrow kind of political elite in these countries, which I think is, you know, sadly looking like the more likely scenario in a country like Congo? You know, what is going on is in the Congo is that you have a very narrow political class that is that is benefiting from from that interest that's coming in this new scramble for Africa. And then it's the political struggle in Congo, you know, that's being led by, you know, different Congolese movements and activists to, to try and shift that open question as to, you know, how successful they will be and how much they can shift in, in what shorter time period. Because one of the things with, with these minerals and metals is obviously once they're gone, they're gone, right? They're not coming back. And these mines are so much more productive today than they were in the 80s and 90s. And that's what's kind of frightening when you look at the, the speed at which they're extracting these minerals. Um, and it's a, and it's a and one, yeah, once they once they are gone, they are gone. So, but of course there are things and, and, and I think you could also look to the 60s and 70s as we were talking about earlier, you know, look to some of the policies that were pursued by governments at that time, look to some of those lessons that can be learned from the past. Um, but yeah, I think you can't, it can't just be done in kind of a trickle down way where you hope that exporting these minerals will then, you know, drive all this transformational change and make Africa kind of prosperous um, continent by 2063 on its own. I think, you know, there needs to be a serious engagement with industrial policy uh, and, and how to use the benefits of those exports as a way to develop other sectors, which are more relevant to the needs and interests of, of people on the continent, right? And that can also absorb more labor. Because these, these sectors, these mineral metal export sectors that don't employ, they're so capital intensive. They're not, they're not, and as you, you know, as we all know, one of the huge issues facing so many countries on the continent is unemployment, 
you know, thousands and thousands of graduates coming out every year from universities with nowhere to go. And so industrialization, to my mind, you can think about it as how do you have urbanization without slums? Something else a mentor has said to me at one time, right? How, how do you absorb productively? And, and the way to do that is not through just exporting minerals. You have to have some sort of way in which you're going to use some of that to develop these other sectors that are more relevant to your internal domestic economy, I think. But the opportunity is always there. You have to, yeah. um, but, it, uh, but, but at the same time, there's a tension there, right? Because I'm sorry, just to finish, I'm talking a lot, but you know, the, no, tension no is, <laughs> the, the tension is that the more that Africa is see, the tension is that, you know, Asia and the global North, let's speak broadly, you know, what do they see from Africa? What do they want Africa? They want Africa to basically provide as many of its minerals and metals as cheaply as it can, as quickly as it can which they can then use to, for their own, develop their own green technologies and export them globally, including back to Africa, right? <laughs> and, this is, and, this is the, and this is the geopolitical struggle that's going on right now, is that yeah. Africa has a very specific vision and African governments have a very clear vision for what they, where they would like to go. But that vision conflicts fundamentally with the vision that the European Union has for Africa within its net zero plan and so there's you know so there's a real tension there and the more that the eu and other actors push africa into this position of exporting commodities in, in some ways the harder it then becomes to escape that position it becomes self-reinforcing after a time so there's a struggle there because the, what africa and african governments want to achieve fundamentally goes against the grain of what the rest of the global economy wants and needs from africa which is cheap resources very quickly please and don't industrialize or raise your prices Thank you very much. So that and, and that's the get that and 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 that's what's playing out, isn't it? I think um, at the moment. Yeah. So it won't be easy, clearly. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean this. Those, those. I mean, you couldn't have. I could have put it better. Um, and I think one thing that stuck out the most actually is once it's gone, it's gone. Once the mineral is gone, gone. Which leads us into the other question, which um, you know has done its rounds on social media. I think there was a famous song about like people in Congo singing to Apple. It's something like that <laughs> about their, the supply chain and everything and pleading to Apple. I don't know if that was real. It was a stunt. I'm not too sure. Um, okay, I missed that. Yeah, but but yeah, let me let me let me get on with the question. Um, but also a side note for someone who has been like you know studying and living in that part of the Congo, particularly, you're quite an optimistic guy for. It's not always the roses when you talk about, you know, Congolese minerals. And so, yeah, anyway, uh, regarding the minerals, um, Africa's mining is also dependent on external actors. And as I mentioned, Apple, you know, is a company and the phone, Apple, iPhone, the minerals are often taken away and given value elsewhere. And depending mm -hmm. on the market elsewhere, in the metal exchange in London, not in Africa. I don't know how many minerals the UK has, but all the minerals in Africa are, you know, brokered and their values assessed in London. Um, mm -hmm. And the fun fact, actually, in one of um, Kaunda's books, uh, he actually talked about how some Pan-Africanists are discussing moving the topics, the, the metal exchange, exchange to Africa, but that never took off. Um, so yeah, for, there we go. For, another another good example from the past. Yeah, great. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, my question basically is: Is there a chance 
for Africa to gain control of their resources, given the level of influence from external market. And I, you know, you also mentioned the, you know, moving to net zero and how that contradicts Africa's own ambitions. Um, so what, is there any, like, how does Africa actually do this? Uh, like, is it possible? Is it feasible? Um, does someone, is someone stupid to be optimistic in all of this? There's always a chance, right? I think we have to believe in the possibilities, um, even if we might not necessarily think that they are likely to take place. So, I, yeah, I do think there's always a chance and there's always a space. And you, you definitely have seen in recent years, and some are talking about it as the rise of resource nationalism on the in, in some countries. But you, you, what you have seen, I think, over the last several years is in several African countries, the passing of new mining codes an introduction of new mining codes that I do think represent perhaps the first generation of mining codes since the 1980s that are beginning to push back against this liberalization and privatization that we've been talking about that took place in the kind of 80s and 90s. Tanzania would be a country where there's been examples in recent years of the Tanzanian government taking concessions back from foreign corporates which have been lying dormant and returning those concessions to artisanal and small-scale miners for example yeah 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 i mean now how much is that i don't know the context intimately i don't know how much that has been sustained and, and being continued but it makes the point that the state holds sovereignty and if it decides it wants to move and do certain things it can move and do those things so the possibility is there of course the difficulty is you know, these mining corporates are extremely powerful. Um, they can now take governments to international courts of arbitration and dispute settlement. So, they, they, you know, they hold far much more power than they held in the 60s and 70s, for example. And, and the power of the state has declined relative to that. So that so there's there's an enormous challenge in that sense. But yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the possibilities are there. The lessons are there from the past. I think the strategies and policies are broadly sort of known and the ideas are out there. I mean, cobalt with Congo would be one good example. It, we were talking earlier about the copper price coming up when uh, Kondo and others put in place this international copper price uh, mechanism. You could do, I don't see why Congo and Zambia and a few other countries couldn't do that with cobalt. You know, the, the global production and export of cobalt is dominated two thirds by Congo. Congo holds half of the world's known reserves. I think produces around two thirds of global supply. Why not get together with two or three other countries and try and control prices and other conditions and leverage as much as you can the benefits from that. But then the issue comes back to what we we're just talking about is that if you do that, if they were to do that, and they were to try and do that, what would happen? What would happen is that countries would try the importers of cobalt would try to move away as quickly as possible from using cobalt in their technologies, which is already happening. You're already seeing in uh, in the US and elsewhere, you know, a huge efforts to reduce their dependence on cobalt, precisely because they're concerned about how dependent they are on the Congo for supply. So again, right, this is where you get back into this, you know, this tension, this geopolitics. Is there any efforts that African governments make to walk in these directions of getting better returns for their exports? On the other end, they're likely to see kind of either resistance or a move away from that particular mineral. And so, you know, again, it comes back to, I think, my main my main kind of thought and feeling in all of this is that I don't think it's wise to just bank on this new interest in African resources as the way through which, you know, transformational change is going to happen. 
it's much better to focus on internal markets and demand, I would say. You know, you take country, Congo or Ethiopia or Nigeria, you know, huge countries, huge populations. And I mean, I don't know, yeah, I'm sure you've observed this yourself, right? When you, like, I think of Congo and I think of all these products that there's a huge demand for internally, basic products, toothpicks, or you go into any, yeah, you go into any Congolese household, you've got this, you know, no matter how rich or poor, you'll have a similar suite of products, right? There'll be toothbrushes, there'll be toothpaste, there'll be plastic cups and saucers, there'll be thermos flasks, there'll be, you know, there's all this stuff. Where's it all coming from? It's mostly coming from China. Not only, but mostly. But how difficult would it be or how much investment would you really need to support those domestic industries to emerge, right? And begin to generate uh, and what and you'd employ much more labor, um, you know, through going kind of labor intensive manufacturing, just need some subs. That, that's, that's industrial strategy I'm talking about. Look at these kind of sectors where you have huge domestic markets, right? Um, and I would say start there. Um, not to say, obviously, you have the minerals and you need to you need to have strategies in place for that as well. But I do think it's extremely challenging to use and to rely on the mineral sector as the way through which you're going to, you know, you're going to achieve your, your aims. And yeah, you're going to achieve what you want to achieve, which when you read like the national development strategies of the Congo, that's basically what they're, they're, they're trying to do. They say, you know, we're going to use the mining sector to become a middle income country by 2030 and a high income country by 2060. And I think okay but you need a bit more than that in place you know would be it would be my feeling uh, otherwise i think you're probably likely just to see what we've seen over the last few decades yeah it's like it's almost like an addiction like um because in congo they both uh, congo and uh, zambia have had various interactions about creating an electric an electric vehicle uh, satellite oh, electric yeah vehicle. and then um, yes the, the the you know there's, there's the famous tanzania zambia railway line which was mm. built under the guise of freeing uh, Zambia towards relying on exports to South Africa, but that railway line mm. now goes east to China, so that we can open to China. And then today there's the Lobito <laughs> railway line, which goes from yeah. Zambian Congo through Angola to the west, exactly. To yeah, United States, and which the US, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean that. That, that that just shows that it's not necessarily over. No one is really thinking about going beyond. And the Zambian president talked about a three three million metric ton target for the next ten years. So it's not. It is it's still. And I think probably the copper prices have also, um, inspired, like motivated people to be like, oh, hey, hold on, then we're still, we're still wondering, we still want to be, um, you know, copper junkies and you know junkies. Um, but yeah, one question I had. Um, more so is your sort of personal experience and in terms of mm. being in Congo and these places in the mining sites and so on, what type of mm. lives and experiences did you catch on um, with the people that are there, the illegal miners, the, the sort of the hierarchy, the big corporate people? Could you just put us into sort of like your experience? Right? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, and I have spent... I mean, maybe collectively, yeah, I mean, a lot of time, particularly in artisanal and small scale mine sites, sometime on industrial mine sites, but a little bit less. And I think the one thing that struck me the most about that experience was, I suppose, just how different it was relative to the narrative that you often read in the West in particular about artisanal and small scale mining, which is, as, you, as we were talking about earlier, is vilified, 
um and seen as you know home to all these development problems and issues and people should just not be mining you know we should just be doing they could be doing other things and it needs to be industrially mined by you know responsible companies but i think from spending time time in those sites and in those kind of local areas and communities um yeah you just see it you just see it very differently and it's obviously a lot more nuanced and complex than that and and also the way in which that form of local mining is seen by many or most Congolese is very different to that Western media narrative. You know, it's understood with a lot more nuance than you often get in kind of media coverage. Yes, they realize the issues associated with it, but they also realize and appreciate how much um, employment it provides and how much economy, uh, how much money it injects in the economy, which circulates locally. And so I think the big difference when you're talking about the hierarchies and you're thinking about kind of what I would call local Congolese mining and then kind of foreign industrial mining. I mean, the biggest not noticeable difference, at least when I think about it now, is the different perceptions of those sectors by Congolese. I think, not to say that artisanal and small-scale mining isn't contested, and of course there are some concessions that are fiercely contested and so on, but I think it's much more embedded, basically, in the kind of local, cultural, social, economic fabric. And it's much more embedded in it and related to it and connected to it. Um, and therefore has a much higher degree of legitimacy, right? Because there's an, there's an aspect of sort of, I suppose, sovereignty, resource sovereignty there. But then, you know, people's perceptions generally to industrial mines, which are in Congo have been for a long time now mostly owned, well, all majority owned by foreign corporations. Um, it's seen very differently because it's seen that the benefits from that industrial production largely accrue overseas um, and and the benefits don't get felt locally. Um, of course, I'm simplifying, you know, and generalizing, um, but I think broadly that's certainly kind of been my experience of how those mines are perceived and seen by Congolese is that the minerals are extracted um, and they're not quite sure, um, you know, what benefit is left from that locally. Um, and, you know, one of the surprising things is you often go into mining areas that were previously mined by Congolese and then a, a mining company comes in and you hear stories from people about, you know, how, how much tougher life is now than how it was before when, when, there, was lo when there was money circulating in the local economy. Um, and there was, you know, high levels of employment. Um, and now there's lower levels of employment and the money isn't circulating in the way that it, it once was. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's it's just different, I suppose, to, to how it's sort of often presented and portrayed um, in, in Western media coverage. Um, and, and I think the miners themselves perceive themselves very differently, right? And don't, I think they, you know, perceive their own lives and their own kind of, jobs and work very differently to how we might think of them um when we see the stories that are in the guardian or whatever website about how terrible things are in those in those places and spaces they also have like a very different understanding yeah i mean hollywood is all blood diamond beast of nations it's all <laughs> this grisly um affair yeah 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 no it's that, yeah whipped by some lord warlord or something I mean, the problem with that stuff is, this is what I have to say to my students re in recent years, is it's a bit like, so I live in Bristol, a city in England, mm -hmm. which has really poor, impoverished, marginalized areas and very wealthy areas. And I think what goes on in the Congo is a little bit like 
if I went to Bristol as a foreigner and I went to the worst parts of Bristol and I filmed it and I took videos of it and then I just produced a film that said, this is England. And I just showed those terrible places and spaces. And I just was, you know, I just presented that as the whole of England. You know, that's often what takes place in Congo is people will come in from the outside. They will focus on the worst areas and the worst spaces, and they will present that as Congo. And you have that in the mining sector. So yes, those militarized mines exist. And yes, those stories exist. Then the question is how reflective are they of the whole? And I think that's what often gets missed. And I think the reality is they're not reflective of the whole. For every militarized mine in Congo, you have as many more that are that are non-militarized and that are peaceful. But you know, who cares about those? Because there's no story there, right? And and I just feel that what what you end up with is then this this, this distorted image and understanding of of the country and and of the people and of the place. Um, and so I think that's what you get from living there. Basically, is you get to go beyond those photos and images of the worst places and spaces to understand there's a lot more to this than that. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, but that that's sort of the things that come to mind. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. Well, was, um there's just so much debate, and I feel like uh, because it's such a it's got such a lion's share countries' economies, it we sort of like tapped on almost every other issue from climate change to sort of social, political, economic problems and um, privatization and everything. But I think if we could, I think the, the big question that's most been on people's minds in all of these countries is always like a headache over um, which, how to get it right. Uh, and all to, all, and this, this could be from like a two-pronged question, you know, and Botswana is often touted as the success story and uh, you know, they got it right, but you know, Botswana is still not the richest country in the way. It's not Qatar either, you know, even though it's a shining, you know, success story, you know, when you look at other mineral rich countries, you look at the UAE, Qatar, those guys were, you know, fish ports 40, 50 years ago. And now, you know, they have proper stakes in even global politics at this point, they're that bold. And Australia, Chile, Chile is one of those examples as well that they like touting around with copper producing countries as well. So what is it that these countries did right that Africa doesn't seem to be doing? Because I mean, there's, there's, I think there are even figures of, you know, per capita, how, you know, Ghana had a higher per capita than South Korea in the 1950s. And now it's just gone. Um, Zambia, Singapore. Yeah, they compare all of yeah. them. So what is it that... You know, these are not Also, Chile, Chile, Chile is, Chile number one or number two copper producer. Number two, number two or number one copper production. But it's a... And then Zambia, Zambia follows, like, somewhere, right? That's what I'm not too far behind. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not a huge difference. So, I mean, what you see, yeah. you know. So why, yeah. is, why is it that these countries have developed in this amount of time? And many of them are developing or, you know, they were they developed in the short space of time, in a time that other countries have yeah. also had. So what's the difference, like what, yeah. make, what makes them so special from countries, you know? Million dollar It's a big question. question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a big question. I don't know we're going to get very, I mean, I don't know how far we can get with it. But it's a, I mean, that, but... 
but yeah, but that's the question, and that's what everyone's thinking about, right? And you know, conversations on the continent and conversations we're having, and these are the questions that people are asking. Right? They're looking elsewhere, and they're and they're looking overseas. Um, and you're right. There's all these examples. I mean, one that I heard recently was Haiti and South Korea, or and Tanzania and South Korea, right? Similar per capita income levels in the fifties, and then and then you have these transformational processes taking place in countries but few that appear to be on the continent i mean there's also you can also look for examples on the continent i think one interesting example which there's a researcher um uh, an indian economist called pritish bahuria who's done some work on mauritius i think i'm right in saying which i think i'm right in saying recently became I think it recently became a high income country or recently or upper middle income but i think high income country so mauritius has gone through one of these one of these transformational experiences. So there are also stories from, from the continent, but I'd also agree that Botswana, which is often held as this model, I would agree with your assessment. It's still fundamentally a diamond dependent exporting economy. And you, you now see that there's this story of uh, diamonds being artificially created in factories, which is obviously uh, terrifying to De Beers uh, and has fundamentally changed the global diamond market potentially. And so if that were to happen, you know, Botswana fundamentally hasn't transformed its economy. It hasn't diversified, right? It's export, it's export products in the way that the other countries you're referring to have. So yeah, it's a success story, but I think also I'd agree it's a limited one and maybe one that can't be sustained unless there's some transformation. So in the question, and we talked about industrial policy, <laughs> haven't we? I think how, how fundamental that is. Um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind as well, you know, having lived in Eastern Congo for many years, um, right on the border of Rwanda and Burundi. I mean, one thing that was very striking to me from that experience was how often Congolese would look over the river towards Rwanda, right? And talk about what was happening in Rwanda. Um, and often people would say, or I would say, well, you know, at least Congo is kind of democratic and, you know, you have, um, and, and people would say, well, you can't, you know, you can't eat democracy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and they would, and they would sort of be looking to aware of Kagame's all the limitations and the political, how closed politically that society is. But nonetheless, having seen Rwanda for the last 10, 15 years now, you know, it's undeniable in terms of infrastructure, right? Infrastructural developments, uh, and things that are taking place and changing in that country compared to Congo and Congolese would look. And so what, but what you see in Rwanda or what you have seen in Rwanda is that in, well, Broadly speaking, that and that effort at economic transformation that comes from, you know, a pretty centralized um, government that is um, that is mobilized around these kind of national developmental aims and, and trying to achieve something through strategic industrial policy. Now, of course, it's more complicated than that, and how far that can go in Rwanda is. But but you know, I think these kind of these approaches and ideas is broadly what you need. But the question is, well, how do you get that in place, right? If you're a Congolese looking at Rwanda and you, and, and there's parts of what you see going on in Rwanda that you are kind of envious of or would like to see happening in your country, then the question is, how do you change, how do you change the political settlement in Congo or the, you know, how do you change the sort of ideology and the way in which, you know, and that's huge. So that, and that, and that's much more complex. That's about struggle. And that's about, you know, that's class struggle, that's social struggle, that's, it's not about policy and strategy, right? Because the question for Congolese is, well, how do we get to a point where we can even be considering 
doing that, right? Because the country seems very far from there. And then you look into the histories of countries like Rwanda or or Ethiopia or South Korea, and you know um, they're often like very kind of specific contextual reasons as to why those governments come into power and begin to pursue a national developmentalist. Yeah, yeah. So it's often very country specific, isn't it? So I don't know. There's no, there is no easy answer, right? But people, <laughs> as they are doing, are engaged in struggle and are engaged in pushing for that future, right? And it just you just need enough people to be mobilized um, for a long enough period of time and hope that that change will come through, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's the arena of struggle, right? Uh, and then there's also the question of well, how far, you know, to what extent and how far can can things be achieved on the continent within the confines of a global capitalist economy, right? And then you get into debates around capitalism and anti-capitalism and, you know, whether capitalism is conducive to those sorts of trajectories in many African countries, right? Because you talked about in Congo, the electric battery vehicle, and this is this yes. is a big thing that they're getting behind now, right, in Zambia and Congo, this idea of industrialization through this value chain. But, th but they're already such a late entrant to that market, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel I feel that's the problem with lots of renewable energy technologies, which many African governments now are seemingly really going after developing manufacturing capacity. But you know the starting gun went off for those in the in the eighties and nineties, um, and you know East Asia and you know North America and Europe just are so dominant in those spaces. Not to say that you know you can't wrest that power away from them; it can be done. But I also just yeah, you just think, wow, it's not going to be easy because those those markets are already so, they already have so many um, entrants. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I I haven't given a very satisfactory answer, but you know, you need. To, I would say learn from the sixties and seventies. There's a lot there that can be dug up, but but the question is how to get those. How do you get those sorts of government structures in place? Right. I mean, that's that's the much 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 harder part, as you as we know from kind of comrades and activists who are involved in these sorts of struggles in various places it's you know chain get, enacting that sort of change yeah 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 it's not an easy thing yeah. to achieve right to change the way in which yeah. the, the, we have that in the you know same in the uk right it's not the same but it's you know similar struggles in the uk when you have you know particular governing logic um, and, you know, all your main political parties are seemingly, you know, imbued with the same logic. I mean, how do you shift that, right, um, in a short time frame? And, yeah, this is what everyone who's thinking about social change is sort of having to having to consider and weigh up and ask themselves these days. Um, but, my, but I think my fundamental point, though, to your question would be the space is there, right, and things things can be done and managed, and sovereignty might have been lost, but it can be reclaimed. There's no... There's no path determinism here, and there's no foreclosure of possibilities, right? Um, what what is lost can be reclaimed. I mean, that is exactly what the kind of anti-colonial movement showed us, right, in the 50s and 60s, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, there's no greater example of that than overthrowing colonial power. You know, all the achievements of that period, right? Um, so of course it can be done, but it it, it takes a lot of mobilisation and organisation over long periods of time. And so, yeah, that's so not I easy. Guess, right? I, I guess young people shouldn't be pessimistic. Is what I'm <laughs> no, it should get active. Because yeah, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it's not going to fall into our laps, is it? I mean, it has to yeah, be I a mean, I struggle. Get, 
I guess the difficulty for young people is like, how do you even move into these spaces? I mean, they're so yeah, like far away. Yeah. I mean, how can little old me like try to have some sort of respect there? Is it's, it's just a whole another uh, conversation in of itself, you know? So yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Thank you, Don Ashkad. Any other questions? No, I don't have uh, any other questions. I might uh, grab that book that uh, you mentioned by um, Kandoviri and yeah, the shameless yeah. plug yeah. <laughs> yeah. well it's not my book I'm not plugging oh yeah sorry, book. sorry about that. <laughs> actually I think you should, you, you should you should plug your book I think though I no, no, no 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 <laughs> no I was I was actually very pleased no I haven't been like shamelessly plugging my own book it just happened as I was talking about as the book came to mind, I just saw that it was on the shelf above me. Um, but it's by African economists of the 80s. I think it was published in the late 80s or early 90s. But, it, you know, if you're interested in that historical period we were talking about of like um, structural adjustment and what went wrong um, in the 70s and 80s and how it was addressed. This book, Our Continent, Our Future, is 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 a must read. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I'm glad we clarified that I wasn't plugging my own book. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we'll definitely put the link to your website in the, in the description for our viewers too. Yeah, I think it's very important. I think you also did a podcast with, uh, I forget, but there was a podcast that I also saw on your website yeah, that mm. quite a while back. Yeah, that was quite interesting as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, is there anything yeah, no, no, I was just, uh, I was just agreeing with you about the podcast. Otherwise, yeah, oh, okay. Well, it's gone around the entire atmosphere of uh, the mining history and recurrent affairs of Africa. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Uh, ben, Dr. Ben, <laughs> thank you so much for, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for, um, for joining us, I think. Uh, it's very important that you kind of highlight. First of all, thank you for being uh, optimistic. Uh, secondly, <laughs> uh, thank you as well for shedding some light because I think that generally, whenever I'm speaking to uh, other many African youths, uh, it's either a lot of uh, pessimism, number one, or number two, just a lot of you know generalization. Like, oh, you know, I remember talking to uh, a friend of mine who, unfortunately, just sort of caught on to his belief that maybe. Africans just aren't good enough. Uh, are dealing into yeah. this, you know, sort of things. You know, it's, it's which a very popular, you know, uh, sort yeah. of belief that that perhaps that maybe it's just the fact that you know Africans just aren't able to handle something like this. Yeah. And um, another one is just sort of maybe this is how you know things are, and this is just how uh, things will continue mm -hmm. to be. So, uh, thank you very mm -hmm. much for for really coming in and shedding some light, especially I like the fact that you sort of stress the importance of the external issues that uh, don't seem to be addressed as well. Uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, um, a lot of the time, myself included, I think we tend to, um, unlike maybe in uh, uh, Western politics where there seems to be at least some sort of uh, research uh, blame on certain particular entities, when it comes to you know, Zambia, particularly, you know, blame seems to fall at the feet of the president, you know, no matter what happens, mm -hmm. 
the ignoring ignoring the past dependencies that sort of are, yeah. are, are, are there and so uh, i think it was really um really important that we had this conversation especially because literally this is the engine for our countries <laughs> and how yeah. i'd say like you know money really comes this precisely you know um and so yeah no thank you thank you very much i i really do believe that we will definitely have you on again because i think this is a very important you know issue and i don't think that one hour was sufficient in my opinion uh but uh yeah, no, no i'd be happily no i'd happily come on again and uh thank you for the invitation and um just to say no i mean those stories of yeah i've had similar conversations around the the pessimism right and the uh, and yeah, these absolutely have to be um, resisted and countered. And, you know, I think if a anyone feels like that, right, what's what, one of the great books that people should read if they have that pessimism is, is Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which is, well, over 50 years old now. But I think it is a great antidote to that sort of pessimism. If you, if you, read, if you read that book, you know, you begin to see very clearly um, this is not either the way that things are naturally or this is not this idea of i mean i know we're running out of time i'm sure but it does remind me of many conversations i had with congolese that i often was really shocked by to begin with it was congolese who would say to me well you know we just the belgians were are better than us they're smarter than us they knew how to run the country um and this is you know this is a very common view that i heard a lot talking with with young and old congolese when i was living there um and yeah i mean that is you know that and, and yeah you have these ideas this art defeat yeah and Zenga, your question about what can africa do right that other countries haven't done you often get these cultural explanations of why other countries have succeeded right either confucianism in the east or protestantism the work ethic of europeans right yeah. and then you know implicit implicit within that narrative what's implicit within all of that for africans it's that, oh, okay, Africans don't have the right work ethic, right? Or don't have the right culture. So, I mean, that's sort of racist explanations, fundamentally, if, 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 when you think about it, because what they're implying is others who have not achieved a similar path or a similar trajectory to us do not contain these required cultural attributes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we have to absolutely seek different explanations and understandings because um it's 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 a dead end otherwise but but yeah but as you point out it's sadly very prevalent you know it's very prevalent and i think it is um it's one of the reasons you're doing this pod you know you're having these conversations i would guess um and 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 then lastly just quickly to stay on the state i mean just a final point if you think about the congo which is a country of around 100 million people what's their annual budget of their government is something like six or seven maybe eight billion dollars right which is probably, I don't know, a, a decent, let the same or less than a city in Germany would have, or, you know, a city, a European city might have. So I think, you know, often you could flip the question on its head to my mind and think how remarkable are some of the achievements that take place within such limited means? Uh, how, what can you achieve with that sort of, <laughs> with that sort of government budget yeah, yeah. that you have? You know, I think I think often the assumption is, you know, these government bodies or state agencies and uh, offices are incredibly, you know, inefficient and corrupt and wasteful. You could you could flip it the other way around and say, you know, they're under resourced 
uh, and perhaps they're overachieving relative to the resources they have, right? I mean, there's a lot of research to be done there, I think, and different ways of thinking about it. But um, yeah, the, the resource, like you say, the, the constraints on trying to achieve sustained kind of transformational developments are, you know, are very significant, both internal and external constraints. And, and I think, yeah, that is often lost when people try and think about or understand kind of development problematic, broadly speaking, in Africa. Um, I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to also point out um, the last of my points. Um, <laughs> I, I also like, I, it kind of puts me on the spot as well for my own, I have to check my own pessimism because, um, but it couldn't be true. Uh, the, like, I often like complain and say, you know, the DRC has a mineral wealth of 24 trillion. And that's the figure that's always thrown around mineral wealth potential of 24 trillion. And I'm like, if the DRC had even like had the operational efficiency of Nigeria or India, they would be one of the richest countries in the world. Like not even, you know, not even an advanced level or developed country level efficiency in um, taxation and wealth accumulation, they would be an advanced country. Um, but at the same time, there's also lots of various factors that, as we said, you know, come in and when you flip it over, you could, it couldn't just be governments, it could be also the different restrictions that are all within the government, even a world intention government, on trying to um, accumulate wealth and redistribute it. And, and then, you know, I, I think just be, being in the government of Congo is just a nightmare, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's also not, to, you know, it's not to completely like, um, uh, uh, completely deny, you know, like the appropriation of this taking place by the political class in Congo, you, you know, that is obviously taking place. But yeah, I do think that we just tend to focus far too much on that still today, to the exclusion of sort of thinking about other, other, other factors that are going on there. But, um, but yeah, look, thanks. It's been great talking to you both. And thanks for, um, thanks for having me on. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, thank you as well to our listeners for joining us. Uh, be sure to follow us on all platforms. Uh, hit that notification bell on whatever streaming platform you're listening to this too. If you're watching this on YouTube again, please be sure to subscribe and share. And see you guys next time. I am an African.